at Jared. We know devotion isn't a once a year occasion. And once the flowers have wilted and the chocolates have disappeared, you'll still want them to know how much you care. Dare to give a gift that lasts this Valentine's Day with our incredible selection of jewelry. From delicate rose gold to bold black diamonds, Jared has hundreds of pieces under $299 and exclusive collections you won't find anywhere else. Shop online or find a store near you at jared.com and dare to be devoted. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another edition of Troy Noons is an Absolute Podcast. I'm your host, as always, John Casillo. With me today is Dan Lyons. Hello. Happy, uh, I don't know. What's this week? We have, uh, we have a thing this week. I mean, depending on when you're listening to this, Tyus Battle may or may not have decided if he's going to the NBA draft. Yeah. So. Happy, happy Tyus Battle is returning, slash. slash happy Tyus Battle's going to be a millionaire very soon week. Happy almost Memorial Day weekend. Yeah, I guess we have Memorial Day this weekend, so, I mean, that's going to be before, obviously, Memorial Day is, so. Right. Yeah, happy days before Memorial Day week, weekend, weekend week. Perfect. Have uh, big plans for you this weekend? Um, I'm probably going to end up down the Jersey Shore. Not totally sure yet. Um, otherwise, no, nothing too crazy. Working, etc. Fun, fun. I'll be... Uh... I'll be flying to Omaha. Ooh. Because realize, you know what? Never been to Nebraska. Is <laughs> so, that the actual reason? That's really the, mostly the reason. It's, oh, all right. Well, fair enough. Yeah. Flying to Nebraska, driving down to Wichita, and then driving down to Oklahoma City and just going to spend a few days in states I've never been to and never will go to again, probably. That's fair. Figure could use a couple days relaxing. It's also dirt cheap to do things there. So literally paid for the entire thing with points. Yeah, I mean, yeah, that that's fine. I would go <laughs> to a uh, mostly points-driven trip to Nebraska on a whim. So, Also figure, like, this is probably like, the last time I'm going to be able to do anything like this for, like, decades. So, Yes, in, like, 12 years, you're going to be very resentful about having never been to uh, a state you haven't been to, Iowa. I don't know where you have not been. Actually, Iowa is only... 12 minutes the 12 minutes away from Omaha. Or else you might get that. I'm uh, swinging I'm swinging into a Starbucks over there. Just really ask for the ask for the 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 corniest Starbucks latte you can get. Like What's what, what's something what local the on most, the menu? Yes. Something with the most uh corn syrup in it, please. <laughs> the highest fructose possible. Oh god. Yeah, that'll uh as long as everything goes as planned. I'll only have 14 states left to check off. And most of them I can check off with college football games, thankfully. Yeah. Aside from, I mean, even, even, I mean, aside from, like, Alaska. Yeah, well, Alaska, Alaska I actually want to go to. Like, yeah, I've heard Alaska's cool. But. Yeah, like, I want to get up there and just, like, spend, like, a week and a half. But, yeah, the other states are, like, places, like, okay, like, I, I look at the map and the only way I can, like, legitimize going there Especially because most of them are, like, in the Midwest, and I have to get on, like, a reasonably long airplane ride to get there is, like, football. Yeah. I guess the big style country is tough, but at least you can, like, say, like, the one double, the uh, FCS, that's been, like, years. The FCS teams are, like, good, so you can at least, like, say that might be fun. Um, yeah, but overall, Dakotas. yeah, it is pretty much football. Yeah, Dakotas, Montana. That's why I want to go to Idaho. I know uh, Alabama I haven't been to. And that's another football destination. Same thing in West Virginia, really. 
Yeah, I mean, I have a lot of boxes to check off in that regard. I've not been to Alabama. I've driven through West Virginia a number of times, ah. but I've not done anything there. So I'd probably fill, fill my gas tank there, which is uh, obviously an exciting endeavor. <laughs> All right, but enough travel tips. I'm sure everyone's already tuned out. Um, figure this is kind of a grab bagish episode. Um, we mentioned the Tice battle thing earlier. Uh, no news has been confirmed as of this taping. Several rumors have said likely leaving, uh, so we'll just kind of leave it at that for now um, and talk about him a little bit later in the episode. Um, and if he changes his mind one way or the other and, and there is a definitive what he's doing um, af- before this podcast is published, then just deal with the outdated recording because I don't want to... I don't want to lose another another episode to talking about something that uh, that they were banking on not happening. Oh, that never happens. Never. The, the, the lost this episodes. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I guess starting uh, something funny that at least I picked up in the links today. Um, Virginia tweeted uh, a list of accomplishments for their basketball team this year, and uh, they forgot one, understandably, but uh, the internet kind of... Uh, Kind of let them have it, and, and and I felt like it was something that I wanted to collectively laugh at as a fan, which made me think Virginia really is like kind of in that rivalry conversation, but not with the venom that we have toward Georgetown, UConn, or even like Duke. No, I think well, I think the the venom comes from like big. I mean, the problem is like the biggest stakes team between the two of us. We won, and we shouldn't have won, sure. and it was really funny that we won. And the second biggest um, stakes team, we also won and shouldn't have won. <laughs> Yes, um, and they kind of have us after. Aside from that, but like when you have like the biggest teams in the rivalry go one way, especially when they were both like upset, it's hard to like it's hard to have like a ton of venom because like the biggest moments all went you know to the dead guys. Where the venom really comes from, like Georgetown shutting down your arena and UConn just being UConn trash all the time <laughs> and beating you a lot. Yeah, uh, I, I I I don't know. I I have an appreciation for Virginia, and yes, uh, they deserve to be trolled like that because good lord like <laughs> really funny yeah don't i mean I, I i understand exactly why you would leave that off a tweet but don't don't set yourself up it's just it's like the raptors tweet from the other day oh yeah like come on like you fired him yes Very the Dwayne pc tweet for those who don't instantly know what we're talking about um they congratulated Dwayne casey on winning coach of the year like days after firing him which is like come on you have to be smarter than that the dumbest. Um, another thing that I felt like was worth covering today, um, apparently this isn't happening, so says uh, the same Nebraska athletic director who started floating the idea out there on radio earlier this week. He was saying, uh, I think it was Bill Moose, who was saying that uh, that there was going to be some sort of change coming in 2022 because to make Big Ten schedules a little bit easier. Um, some folks took that uh, to mean that there might be a move back to an eight-game schedule for the Big Ten. He clarified on Wednesday, said that was not going to be the case. Um, personally, I'm a big fan of that move if they made it. Um, I think Big Ten and Pac-12 should both do it. I think the Big 12, it would be really hard to sell that in with, with a 10-team model. But um, the Pac-12 and Big Ten haven't necessarily been helped by it. The Pac-12 in particular has been hurt by it. I know we talked a little bit about the Pac-12 last week. But in general, I, I do think that, that eight games makes a lot more sense. It gives teams a lot more flexibility. Um, I understand that the TV inventory part of it. But if you're filling those games mainly with home games anyway, 
um, you own that inventory. So it's I, I don't necessarily think that part is as compelling as some people make it out to be. It's also like, obviously you don't want to lose like a Wisconsin-Ohio State game that you might have gotten or, or a, you know, a Michigan-Nebraska game that you might have gotten. But so many of these games are just like, that. the, the games that are going to be lost like are largely dregs. Purdue uh, versus or, or Rutgers. Just, yeah, they're either like uninteresting because both sides are uninteresting or they're un- uninteresting because it's going to be like Ohio State, uh, Illinois. Right. Like, what are you dearly getting from that? So, I mean, I, I don't think there's a huge difference between Ohio State, Illinois and Ohio State, you know, even like Toledo. Like, I, I mean, I know there is a difference and obviously Illinois is a power five and could bounce back, but like. In terms of what the fans care about and the TV ratings, I don't think there's going to be, like, such a huge difference. And it, it, it probably will help the Big Ten. It's funny because it seemed like, and this happens in college football so much, it seemed like the push was to have everyone end up at nine games. And instead, like, it, it is kind of funny to see us moving back. And you could probably point to the fact that the SEC and ACC are the only programs uh, or the only conferences that uh, have not missed a college football playoff. Yeah, I mean, you know, for those who don't remember, the ACC was ready to push to nine until the the Notre Dame agreement, and there was pushback from the football schools, well, the quote-unquote football schools, particularly Florida State, Georgia Tech, Clemson, later Louisville, um, given the fact that those schools already face a Power 5 team every year, so the years that they face Notre Dame, um, that would give them, you know, 10, that would give them 11 games locked in. Um, before looking at anything else. And 11 games against P5 competition locked in. Um, that's not really sustainable. Uh, it, I mean, I'm sure the fans love it, but until you start losing those games. Um, you look at what's happened with the Pac-12 and the Big Ten, uh, and, and the Big 12 to some extent, um, although the Big 12 does schedule woefully bad. But like in, in a way, I should applaud and do applaud. Um, so that as many of their middle-class citizens do make bowl games because despite the nine-game schedule, um, there's a lot of kind of filler in that conference. And then everyone just schedules scrubs in the other three games so that most of the teams make a bowl game, save Kansas. But yeah, I think like you look at the middle class and even the lower class you know, for the ACC and SEC, how, how they're able to make the postseason you know, repeatedly and, and, and how the conference as a whole, both of them have, I mean, SEC was there already, but the ACC, the conference as a whole, has really risen up in terms of quality each and every year. And you're seeing teams like Boston College and Wake Forest, um, Syracuse to some extent, get better. Um, I'd say most of them, I mean, even Duke, Virginia, like everybody's finding ways to get better um, year over year. Um, and you're seeing that pay off with, with more bowl games and more bowl wins and better recruiting. Like all that's happening for them. Obviously, the SEC follows this to a T where, you know, Outside of the eight games in conference, um, they do have a P5 requirement, but most of those games are, are, are not exactly competitive for, for teams, um, and they're able to pick up wins. The other three games are, are against pretty listless opponents for the most part. Like They've created a model that, that very clearly shows that not just the top teams, but any team, um, eight games is really the way to go, and, and it's interesting, like especially given the Pac-12's troubles kind of asserting itself um, as a league, you know, that's kind of on par with um, the other power uh, leagues. It's it's interesting that, that, that there is still, like, this big, big push for, for nine from from athletic administrators, from coaches. It just makes everybody else's job harder. Now, what I really would like to see, and it'd be nice if the Big Ten kind of got the ball rolling on this, 
is if they want to protect some of those cross-division games that are going to be lost, if they could maybe make a move towards a pod system that we've talked about a million times. Yes, please. Um, because we, like, while I think we appreciate having the eight games because it adds flexibility and especially, like, allows us to hopefully schedule an extra win every year, um, not always the case, as we saw last year, it's also, it kind of stinks that we haven't played, I mean, have we even, we haven't even played every ACC team yet. Um, yeah, I think this is... I this think is the first year... This is our first... I think North Carolina is the last team we had to check off. Yeah, so it's taken this long to finally play uh, our last ACC team in football. Um, and while I don't think moving to nine games would be great, I would like to see uh, some kind of system that would allow us to play some of these teams more regularly, so it feels like we're more of a cohesive conference. Um, and obviously it's been floated, uh, if you read like any kind of realignment stuff, Um adding instead of like just having this two division system going with a pod system where you'd have like four groups of four or I guess we have 14 teams. So you'd have uh, groups of three and groups of four that rotate and play each other. Kind of like how the NFL schedule works. Yep. Um, and that case, like you have your, your actual rivalries protected. So you'd have, you know, in the big 10, you'd have Ohio state, Michigan, Michigan state, uh, which would be kind of tough because those that one pod would be so loaded. But you protect those rivalries and then also get to play the non-division uh, games uh, more often. Probably, I, I forget exactly how the math works out, but in the ACC, I think it was like twice as often. Yeah, I think you play, the, the way the math has worked out is that you would play everybody um, home and home throughout your time there. It's like if you were a four-year yeah. player, you'd be able to, to visit every venue and you'd be able to have every team visit you. Yeah, which would also be nice when, like, we're recruiting Florida so much, having, being able to tell a Florida recruit um, every, you know, in your four years at Syracuse, assuming you say four years, um, you will get to go at, to Florida State at least once and Miami at least once. Now, obviously, right now, it, it works out in, in terms of just that one state because we play Florida State, you know, twice on the road during a five-year tenure or a four-year tenure. But it would be nice to, you know, if they're a South Florida kid, you know, being able to play at Miami more often, which I know is the thing uh, that Dr. Gross really pushed for, would be really nice for recruiting. Obviously, maybe not as nice for wins and losses, and, and you know, we can argue maybe you should start scheduling FIU, but it still would be cool to see, like, more of our ACC teams versus just the the uh, the couple that we see every year now. Yeah, and, and that's that's the problem with, like, what the current setup with divisions is that you have, like, people saying, oh, well, like, we shouldn't have to face, we shouldn't have to wait so long to face, you know, conference opponents and all that, and that's great. Like, I agree with that, but... The pod system is a much better setup than, you know, the, the divisional setup is and, and the way that, like in the ACC in particular, there's very few cross-divisional rivalries that make, that make much sense and need to be protected, and yet they protect a bunch of them. Um, the fact that, you know, we face, you know, NC State every year uh, while we face Virginia once every six, like when it's obvious that Syracuse would probably get a lot more out of facing Virginia <laughs> than they would the Wolfpack every year. And, like, having a protected game against Pitt that we may or may not even care about. I mean, I think under any pod system, we'd probably have Pitt no matter what, um, just by way of geography. But nonetheless, like, it would make a lot more sense, and it would make the conference a lot more cohesive, you know, if we, if we did go into some sort of pod model. Because it, it's not that we really have proof of it working um, anywhere, just because of NCAA rules um, and how divisions have gone thus far. But... It does make the most sense for both fans and schools, I think. And like you said, from a recruiting standpoint, um, it does make it much easier to, for every school to really, you know, use the entirety of the footprint um, to their advantage. 
yeah, I think we would end up with at least one of BC and Pitt. Um, but, you know, overall, I think there, there would definitely be some work to do on this if they decided to go that way, and especially in terms of figuring out who the two teams to represent you, your conference in the conference championship game would be, which honestly, like, I think almost every year would be pretty obvious. Um, and, and right now there are, like, tiebreakers involving culturable playoff rankings and whatnot that determine some things down the line. So the, the, the obstacles, aside from the fact that the NCAA has rules that kind of prevent it as of now, um, which I'm sure could be challenged as we saw like the Big 12 do uh, with them getting a, a conference championship at all recently with their appeal. Um, I think if, if there was a really a, a will to do something like that, you'd see it. So it would be nice uh, to to have an option down the road where we would get to see more of the conference. Um, not that I'm I'm so tired of playing, you know, NC State every year, but it just it just doesn't feel like quite like you know we're we're in the same league as like a North Carolina sometimes in football or or Miami, which we you know was a was an old conference rival that we were excited about joining up with and we didn't see them until what year five year four right so yeah definitely uh, something we've talked about before um, but in in spirit of a change in how one conference does things. I think it's a thing that could make a lot of sense, especially for like the Pac-12, which has its own unique scheduling where um, I don't think having nine games helped them, but I get why they might be more resistant to moving from it because they have their like California scheduling things, uh, their unique, you know, arrangements and maybe having like a, a pod like system or a, or something like, like that, that could, you know, have a little more flexibility would be be good for them while also being able to free up one of those conference spots for a non-conference game. Yeah, I mean, they basically created pods as it is. because Yeah, I guess they kind of have de facto, de facto pods. Yeah, because they've already got, like, I mean, for 12 teams, a little bit tougher. You basically do, like, let's say looking at a quote-unquote California pod to start. If you're USC, you face the other three teams every year you face one of the other two pods in full every year, and then you'd have to face one other team in the other pod every year. So it would take you four years to see everybody. Uh, no, it wouldn't, actually, because you just rotate the other two pods. Um, yes, yeah, I guess that would work, too, to be honest. Like you just, There's some teams you would see a little bit more often than others. Yeah, and then there are like unbalanced schedule issues, but like, look at the SEC West. Like The SEC West... Um, up until like the last couple of years, I mean, even I mean, basically right now the SEC West is still the stronger league. Now you're starting to see some balance, um, but for like a good probably half a decade, the SEC West was so much better than the East, um, and before that, the East was a lot better than the West. So like out of balance divisions and groupings are like not new at all. So there are definitely arguments against it. It just seems like that those arguments are they don't take into account like what the reality is all the time. Right. Yeah. And it really just takes one. And like maybe maybe the one like I know for a long time we thought that like Larry Scott was kind of it was like the guy who would make that leap. I just don't know if the Pac-12 has the the flexibility to do that right now. Um, Unfortunately, I feel like it has to be, um, you know, the Big Ten or the Pac. It has to be the Big Ten or the SEC or the ACC to take that leap and maybe do something out of the box, but I feel like the Big Ten is probably the most likely just because the, the ACC and SEC don't really leap without the other one. Yeah, and the Big Ten always just kind of sets its own, like, rules of engagement with everything because they're in the Big Ten and feel like that's okay, which is, in this case, to be if they want to do something like that. I, I assume what this is more, um, as you said in the post, like, it, it's probably just moving back to eight games, but, you know, we can hope. 
We can indeed. Um, also on the scheduling front, this is something that kind of started getting going more in the comments. Um, for that post, another post, I know my usual posting about the schedule, which I haven't done a lot of lately, if only because of the fact that the next two seasons, 2018 and 2019, are done, and we have gotten ourselves in a decent spot for 2021, even if not 2020. But I am getting very concerned about, like, I feel like we're back to where we were before, not because we're actually behind, since, again, the, the next two 2018, 2019 seasons are done, but... Um, it's just that everybody else in college football is getting, letting everybody else's actions dictate ours. And, you know, we, we've brought this up on the blog before. We brought this up here. Like, if Army doesn't count as a P5 for ACC, and it, I don't really think it should, but it may. Um, and I know John Wildhack has indicated he believes it should um, or does. Like, 2023 has Army as the only team scheduled right now. Um, 2024 has Army as the only team scheduled right now. Um, 2027, 28, don't have anybody. The 2023 and 2024 dates are really kind of concerning. And then when you look at all the other dates that are filled, it's really Notre Dame is filling a lot of these requirements for us. I'm really concerned that, like, 2023, there's already hardly anybody left. Michigan State's the only Big Ten school that you could really even potentially schedule. Um, USC's available, Washington's available, I think Oregon State might be available, like Alabama, like there's really a very, very short list already for 2023, and if Army doesn't count, like we're kind of screwed and we're going to end up being once again, I mean, who knows, maybe maybe SU turns itself into an eight-win team by then, and then like y- you deal with being a sacrificial land in Alabama because you're only going to lose by 10, but I, I sincerely doubt that. Yeah, it is kind of, uh, kind of funny in like a macabre way that we seem to have finally gotten our, our uh, scheduling thing figured out, or at least it's a lot better than it was. And the scheduling, uh, like, pro, like just how it works overall in college football has gone so out of whack and so far ahead, which is really dumb. Like, it's not like it's not like Syracuse is falling behind on something that makes sense. Like, right. Syracuse is falling behind on this really dumb thing that we do in this sport that doesn't make a lot of sense at all. I don't really get why... Uh, beyond television contracts and things to sell like that for like the the opening game of the season, like I really do not understand why we do this to ourselves in college football. Basketball doesn't do this. No, and it's so much smarter because in basketball you can assess where your program is in the off season and say, hey, here's what we, the tiny games we want to play, and then you you figure out well you know your RPI goals and you figure out which prominent programs you want to face in in what you know, locations, and you figure out, you know, for SU, what day you want to play MSG and who you're going to play, what old Big East teams you want to play, and then you go do it in the offseason because there's months and months to do that. In college football, you're deciding, you know, 2029 in 2018, you have no idea. Alabama could be 1-11 in 2029. They already have, like, and they're going to fill up their schedule, uh, you know, probably seven years before that. So it just doesn't make any sense as to why we do this so far ahead. I just, you I've never heard a good explanation for why it's so far ahead. No, I agree. I mean, I, I think a lot of it comes from the Big Ten and SEC approaches to fandom and how their fans travel and all that, and I, I get it. But, like, no fan needs 10 years to plan travel. No, You can't book travel 10 years out. Yeah, I can get the, I could, you, I could get the argument of, a, of a, having, like, 2019 or 2020 set right now. I could get that because then people have like a full year plus to plan, you know, their big trip around their football team. Beyond that, doesn't like there's just no 
rhyme or reason for why why like games in 2027, 2028 are being booked almost every day now because it's like a big off season thing. This is what these ads are doing. So it just it just drives me crazy even more so because Syracuse had never quite seemed to be up on it. Like it's so ridiculous that it's almost hard to blame them versus like before we were falling behind for like the year we were about to play or like two years out, which was dumb. This is just like wild that we're like this concerned about like five and six years out. Yeah, I, I mean, and again, I understand like some of this is me just getting like nutty, but some of it is really like, like I said, that 2023 gap is bad. Like, Oh no, it's, it's definitely a concern. Yeah. It just like sucks that it doesn't. Yeah, yeah, it, like it shouldn't be one. The 2020 thing is a little concerning, like, even without that lens. Not because, like, I actually like what we've done so far. We're at Rutgers and we're hosting Liberty. Um, but overall, like, I mean, I guess we just throw in an FCS team and then find a random one-off with, uh, with you know, some group of five school and we're fine. But I'd rather do that sooner than later. And I don't really, I don't really know what would prevent us from just doing it now since everybody else seems to be scheduling out 2020 already. Yep. Amen. <laughs> Dan, you get me talk about scheduling and then just just start Time going, flies. just start going off. Um, <laughs> all right. Uh, why don't we talk a little bit of beer and then we can get back on topic. Cool. Uh, what have you been drinking? Uh, so I had a decent amount of new things this week. Um, none that I'd say were like great out of the new ones, but some interesting ones. I had a, a couple of Village IPAs from Alphabet City Brewing. Um, which is here in the city, uh, which I haven't had a ton from them, but it was, you know, a solid IPA. Um, nothing like to, you know, crazy to write home about. I had a watermelon session ale from Montauk, which I actually didn't love, but, you know, it's one of the only new things I had, so I feel like I should talk about it. I feel like watermelon beers uh, are kind of hard Very to strike a balance with. Yeah, and this one, like, the problem is, like, the watermelon flavoring they usually go for, uh, they often go for is like the watermelon Jolly Rancher like you know candy flavor and not like actual watermelon and that's just not a great beer flavor I don't think it's just so like it's so sweet and so dominant that it's hard to balance it with like actual beer and especially this one being a session like it was just like all that and just didn't love it I also like haven't loved everything I've had from Montauk. Um, I had a Hoptologist uh, double IPA from Knee Deep, which is up in Connecticut. I hadn't had anything from them before. Um, they're from oh no, never mind. They're in California. The thing I the the place had Connecticut, which <laughs> explains why I have not heard of them. They're from Auburn, California. Yeah, um, NorCal. Yeah, they're they're a West Coast style uh, uh, double IPA, and it really t- that makes a lot more sense now based <laughs> on the beer. It's super 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 hoppy. Um, not my favorite double IPA, but you know, good. If you just really want a hot bomb, it, it, it is that. Um, and it wasn't bad. It was it was a solid drink. And then the one I had had before, which I had again, and was probably the best beer I had this weekend, was the Sequench Ale from Dogfish Head, which is delightful. Um, it's their sour goza it has like kind of a, a Kolsch, uh kind of some saltiness. There's a lot of blends of uh, different flavors, and it works really, really well. Um, so that one's always great, especially for the summer. Yeah, I'm a fan. Um, for me, I was back on the East Coast over the weekend, so had some did, <clears throat> took myself back to college a little bit. Had some Circus Boy because uh, while uh, Magic Hat Number Nine gets out here, nothing else from Magic Hat really gets out here, which is weird. So, it's funny because it's like so abundant. Not as much here, but like up at Syracuse, like you would oh yeah, swear that Magic Hat was like everywhere. 
Yeah, I don't understand why that's uh, number nine is the only beer that gets out here. But had some Circus Boy, um, had some Brooklyn Lager, some High Lie. Um, had actually, I had something from Montauk as well. Had a Juice Box IPA that was okay. Um, a little thin, to be honest. Um, and then from Greenport Harbor, had a Summer Ale that was pretty light. Um, and then back out here, I went out last night just to watch the uh, Rockets Warriors game. And had from Hop Saint, had a Bring the Noise New England style IPA. Um, I had an Admiral Denali Dank and Resinous IPA from uh, Pizza Port that was pretty good. Um, and then I had uh, the Pupil from uh, Society Brewing. And that's just a, a good standby uh, when you find it on draft. So yeah, nothing, nothing crazy, but, but an eventful uh, few days of drinking. Yes. Indeed, indeed. Um, all right, we can switch focus a little bit to basketball. Figure we talk a little bit scholarship situation, um, and then talk a little bit about Tyus Battle and hope that it's not outdated. Um, so, uh, for those that didn't read, um, and apologies, Dan, if you didn't read, James put up a pretty good post today just talking about the roster breakdown year over year, starting with 1819, um, and then going through, uh, you know, 2020 to 2021. And SU looks like they're in pretty good shape. I mean, obviously, some of these guys can leave. Um, I know he accounted for Ty's battle leaving, but you gotta like where it's at um but that does you know allow us to the next few classes like really pursue the sort of like you know three to five player super classes that we used to um you know in like the mid-2000s yeah and i don't mind like taking some smaller classes here and there um if they are like the right players you obviously have to hit on them um but because we've had such a weird scholarship situation in the last couple years it would be nice to like get back some bid classes and hope that they've worked out better than some of the last bid classes we've had. Cause I, I feel like our, our like last couple, like four and five person classes really have had uh, some pretty questionable hit rates. Yeah. And I mean, a lot of that too, it's not like they're not good players, but uh, th- those I'd say between sanctions and unexpected departures and NBA draft departures, like the, the, there has been a weird like lack of rate of success on these guys. And I don't know necessarily what it is, I won't speculate um, just because, like, A, I'm not, like, a big, big recruiting person, especially for basketball, um, and B, like, I don't, I don't think that this says anything about Bayheim or the staff because this program's done just fine the last few years, um, all things considered. But, yeah, I, 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 think, I think small classes work if you're going to hit on them all. I think a big class – like, I'd rather go hit on three of five in a big class – then hope you hit on three of three in a small class. Uh, yeah, I, I think that's fair. Because you're still getting the same amount of successes anyway. <laughs> it's just you're, you're increasing your odds to get those three. And I know that's weird because, like, th- that kind of brings up, like, where is SU on the, on the uh, you know, the, the spectrum of programs, too. Because, like, you know, it's rare that Duke really strikes out all that hard. Kentucky, same deal. Like, there's guys that might not perform, like, you know, five-star, blue-chip, like, amazing players right away, and they might need another year, or they might just transfer, whatever, but, like, they don't really, they don't really miss on guys, and I feel like SU is still in that state where we do miss on guys, and, like, it does happen, and it does have a real impact on, like, the construction of the team. Yeah, it's, 
it's in, it's tough because it, it feels like when you have these bigger classes and you have two guys transfer out um, in quick succession, a, a you can get into kind of APR problem trouble. Although it seems like the like teams across the country have kind of figured out the APR. Yeah, like we don't see very many getting penalized anymore. Um, and if that says it's a joke and it's not a good measure of <laughs> academics at all. Um, but also, like I think I think it can be a little bit demoralizing in terms of like what the fans think, and that's not always the most important thing. But you run into like a, a weird place when you see like three of the five guys, you know, not work out, even if the other two work out really well. Or on the other hand, if you have like, you know, two or three of your five guys not work out, and then, you know, one of your guys leaves for the NBA after a year, and then you get into like these weird um, roster spaces. But at the same time, like where we are in college basketball, there's no like magic, magic fix for like what your class turns out to be because you have guys leave earlier than you expect. You have more and more transfers because of playing time and, and players being more more uh, attuned to what their situation is. And it's just, I don't know, I feel like it's a really tough time to recruit uh, right now in college basketball if you're not one of the few schools that are battling for one-and-dones every year. And we've kind of fallen out of that, you know, we were there for a bit and now we're not really. Um, so it, I, I think it might have taken the staff a little while to kind of adjust to how recruiting has changed even in the last five years along with having the scholarship issues. So we've kind of ran into a just a weird spot overall, but I, I think we are we're definitely moving into a healthier place um, based on how the last couple classes have looked, um, as long as we don't have more, like, Torian Thompson situations. Oh, 100%. And, like, you know, I, I think seeing, seeing that, like, you know, Jerry McNamara is starting to get active on the recruiting trail and, like, is starting to, to pick up some more interest from guys I know, like... I'm going to butcher his name. I don't want to. Um, the uh, Osana Sunyi, uh, who chose St. Bonaventure over Syracuse. Like, a lot of people were trying to use that as some sort of, like, you know, big, oh, my God, like, Syracuse can't even beat the Bonnies. Like, well, I mean, if you're, if, if you're him, like, look at, the, look at the depth chart, and it's pretty easy to see, like, oh, Bonnies don't have any big men. Syracuse has several. Um, I'm not playing until 2019, 2020 at earliest. Yeah, I, I was not really bothered by that, like, Clearly, we, we got an on, on him late. Um, we thought it'd be, like, a, a you know, interesting late flyer. Um, I'm sure the players know this. Like, I mean, some players jump at these things late, especially, like, in both sports. But you see a lot in college football. Like, you see a guy who flips late in the recruiting cycle, and then it, you know, doesn't work out, and he transfers, like, a year later. And you're like, all right, well, he, you know, it clearly wasn't the right place for him. But, you know, the, the coaching staff got, got worried and had an extra spot to fill and wanted a, an extra quarterback, so they went and got him. Like, I think players overall are just becoming more cognizant of their situations now across the board in college sports. Like, I think you see that with these transfers. There's been a lot of talk about, uh, especially the quarterback position, because you see so many quarterback transfers, and there's just, like, stupid Neanderthal, uh, like, viewpoint of these guys not wanting to, like, gut it out. It's like, yeah, they don't want to sit on the bench for four years if there's a five-star waiting for them and another five-star behind him, and, and they want to go play somewhere. Like, I don't know why why uh you know wanting to play somewhere is like all of a sudden a crime um but uh you see it in basketball too like he could have come to Syracuse and maybe he would have been good enough to play in the rotation maybe he would have turned into a star here but you know he might have thought that was a long shot or he might not have been comfortable with something else about how the how things stack up Bonnie's are a good program they've been going to the tournament a decent amount recently um he was going to play for, he was committed to LaSalle yeah before until the coaching change 
Yeah, so like he might have just been he might have been more comfortable with that kind of you know a ten a ten level program. So I, I don't think this is like Syracuse getting beat out by the Bonnies on a on a purely basketball terms. Like there was more here, and you know it, it's perfectly fine when a player gets a bid late offer for them to not turn uh you know automatically jump to it. We've seen it. I mean, look at like Jake Picard a couple years ago with our football team. Like he had those Michigan and Florida offers really late, and we hung on to him because we were in there first. He thought he fit better here. Um, so like it, it, you can't you can't like get upset about it in one end and then like celebrate it when Syracuse football recruits uh, turn down like late SEC offers. It 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 functionally is the same thing. Well, and it's also like you know look at just like a week before like Braswell was the exact opposite thing. It was what you were just talking about like. For Braswell, we got in late. UMass had been there forever. And then we just came in and got him. Like, so you can't, you can't apply completely different lenses to the same program doing something and it working once and not the other. Yeah, no, I totally agree. It just, it, you need to have perspective on these things. If this was a kid that we were in on for months and he just, like, took his recruitment this late and then he opted for the Bonnies. And it was, you know, a big, you know, recruit that we've been on that's been part of the plan for a while. Then you can be kind of concerned. Um, here, it just, like, really wasn't a big deal for me. And and I think most, like, there were only, I, I think most of our fans kind of got that. There were some that were freaking out. But overall, like, I didn't see too much uh, teeth gnashing over this one, which I'm, I'm glad about because, like, it does require a little bit of nuance. But you have to kind of understand, like, how these situations aren't all, like, exactly the same. No, 100%. And, like, yeah, like, looking at the rest of this future roster, like, and James mentions putting Brissett on past this year is a little bit of a long shot. Um, but, but again, he says that. Like, so we'll probably have f- at least four spots for 1920, um, and then at least five for 2020 to 2021. I like where these this team's headed just because I feel like it finally – doesn't feel so skewed towards one uh, type of player or another. Um, you know, where I feel like past teams have either been very big with very li- few options um, in terms of scorers, you know, at the guard positions, or some that have been super guard heavy and really haven't had enough in the middle. I feel like these next few teams uh, do have the balance. It's just going to depend on, obviously, who else they bring in and how you replace that scoring. Like, if assuming battle leaves, I, I do think that you know, Syracuse is going to have to find a way to make up that scoring, but I, I think they can. I, I think, and you and I have talked about this on the podcast, like if Brissett adds three points a game, um, if Sidibe is uh, healthier, if Chukwu can be a little bit more consistent, like, you know, if Howard can add even a point per game, if Carey's going to come in, Elijah Hughes, like these are, all, and like Dolajai, let's say if he adds another three to four points a game, like it's easy to, it's easier than you think to, to make up battle scoring obviously a bunch of players don't necessarily replace uh, what one player does though and that's going to be the the bigger question is you know battle was such a a high usage rate guy and such a a, a ball handler for so long like how is his offense going to evolve without him Um, and can Frank Howard um, you know man the point and be more of a even more of a primary ball handler um, in 2018-19 I guess we'll see I think to be honest I think a lot of I know you agree here, like Howard's gotten more flack for his play than he probably deserved. He was one of the most improved players in the conference last this past year. Um, I think he can handle it, but it's not like he's suddenly the only guy like Carrie and Hughes alone can come in. Um, 
even as freshmen and, and start to, you know, take some of that load off him, um, even if not in full. Yeah, I mean, this team is not going to be at its best if it's going to be the Tyus Battle show all over again. I think, honestly, like, be, I want Battle back, like, all things considered. It's his choice, and I'll, you know, be happy for him, whatever he chooses. But as a Syracuse fan, I think we should all want Battle back. I think the team is at its best if Battle comes back, but not if it's going to be Battle having to play the same kind of ball he played last year, and that's not a knock on him. That's just, I think what we needed from him. Right. Um, I think this team is going to be better off no matter what with him back or not. This team is going to be much better if it's sharing the ball more and there is more ball movement and it's less reliant on him as like the solo offensive threat as it was so often last year. Um, so obviously I think, I think the, the team will be at its best if he does come back and, and you know, that'd be great if it happens, but either way uh, you're going to need to see um, more of a, a weight on the shoulder of, of guys like Frank Howard, of uh, Marek, of O'Shea, um, and then obviously having guys like Carey and Hughes in. Um, so I, I think there's a there's a decent chance that this team is going to look a lot different whether or not Battle's back on the roster. So it's not going to just be like, you know, the Tyus show and have him average 25 points a game and have the same kind of like stagnant offense and this team lets itself into the Sweet 16 again. And there's a chance that, you know, if he leaves, it might force us into a style of play that might be better off overall. Um, not that I am rooting for him to leave. Um, I think the, the team definitely has its highest ceiling with him on, on the roster. But um, if he is gone, like, there's a chance that we might actually, like, unlock uh, a more cohesive style of play without him, at least earlier. Yeah, I mean, we've seen this before with Syracuse and many other teams, just... Just because you lose a really good player doesn't necessarily mean you're screwed. Um, it's not to say that you're better. It's just to say that there, there is a different... Certain players are, are going to play a certain style of basketball, and sometimes that's conducive to the coaching staff and the rest of the players, and sometimes it isn't. Um, that's not just at the college level. That's at the NBA level as well, where you see a departure suddenly unlocks this, like, you know, secret power up that nobody uh, that nobody knew was possible, or even just plugging in a coach. Like said, even talking about the NBA for a sec. Like, you know, I, I think that you know bringing in Buttonholzer up to the Bucks, where they might as well not have had a coach these last few years because you had a lot of great pieces that seemed to fit together, but there wasn't a, a single offensive play run in any game that I watched for the Bucks. So, so like changing up something like that like, is probably going to pay some really great dividends for them. I feel like for SU, like, I'm not going to guarantee that, that losing Tyus Battle pays some dividends, but it could create a little bit more ball movement, a little less ISO ball, because those ISO sets were not, were not all that effective. It's not as if last year's offense was like, like we've seen in the past with Syracuse and teams like Virginia, where it's low scoring but efficient. Like, this was very inefficient and very low scoring all at once, and it's a miracle that we were able to do what we did. Yeah, and I think some of that was by necessity. I think Battle played the way we kind of needed him to play. But hopefully next year we have more options and we have continued development for guys like Frank and O'Shea and Marek, who all had like a lot of playing time this year. Um, and we can kind of see a more uh, open style of play just because they have more experience and they're not going to have Battle to lean on. That being said, I think ideally you get Battle back and he fits pretty seamlessly in more of an open offense. And we saw that two years ago, like, our offense was definitely better two years ago. Obviously, the defense is way worse. Um, but I, I don't think it's it's Battle's fault at all. Um, I just think that, you know, having him 
if he does leave, which I am not rooting for, um, you could see a team, the team kind of morph into what it needs to be quicker than if it has him to rely on, especially like early in the season where the team can rack up wins and he can, you know, ball out and, and kill some lesser teams. But then, you know, they, they're not actually running uh, a great sets when it comes to ACC play. So this is my hope. My hope is that if he does leave, we see the team kind of develop without him faster than they would have with him. Um, of course, that could be, you know, that could be completely wrong and they're completely lost without him. But I, I have some hope that uh, we'll have a, a functional team either way. Yeah, totally. Um, so I guess that brings us to our last uh, topic of battle and whether he stays or goes. I know um, mock drafts are kind of torn. There's a couple with him in the late first. Most of them have him in the second, like early to mid. I know the reports said that he was likely to stay in the draft, which makes me think he might have a uh, guarantee coming his way. Um, Dan, I guess first, do you think he stays in the draft? And, and two, do you think he stays in the draft without a guarantee in the, for, to go in the first? Um, it's kind of it kind of seems like he's going to stay in the draft just based on everything we've heard the last week or so. It seems like everyone who's made a made a, an agitated guess has made the agitated guess that he will. Uh, and you know, obviously, we've seen these ton of reports be wrong, uh, even like with stuff surrounding battle. But overall, like I tend to trust people who are tapped into this stuff. That being said, I, I would hope that he would get a guarantee because. Uh, it's just such a crapshoot, and we've seen some other players supposedly get guarantees, so there are kind of limited spots. So, I mean, just the difference between having that guaranteed contract in the first round and not in the second round is huge. Uh, so you hope that, you know, he's getting his guaranteed money if he makes the jump. But if not, you know, if he goes in the second round, we've seen we've seen second rounders become successes and find their way. So um, either way, hopefully he, he does well, because that's what's best for Syracuse in the long run, is to have our players play well in the NBA. But I, I do hope that he does that guarantee just because, it, you know, that'd be good for us as well, like having another first-rounder for the first time in a, in a couple of years here. Well, yeah, I mean, if we had, I think he would be the sixth in a row, maybe, if he was picked in the first round. I want to say, like, I believe that's the case. Maybe sixth in a row. But in any case, it, no matter how he got to the NBA, it'd be great to see him succeed. Um, I think he'd be a guy who... We talked about this before. Like he'd be a guy that would really do well in a young team that was able to give him some minutes um, and let him get some burn. Unlike you know guys like Malachi, who's kind of been buried on the, the Raptors now after getting some burn with Kings. We saw this happen to Rakim Christmas a little bit when he was with um, Indiana. This happened to Lorenzo Nawaku when he was in Orlando, and they were kind of in between rebuild and like trying to become maybe a 500 team with a lot of veterans. Um, bunch of other SU players have suffered from this as well I, I do think I'm starting to find it harder and harder to believe he gets the guarantee but I think he might go anyway if only because I don't necessarily know like all these people who have been claiming that like you know he's a top 10 to 15 pick next year like that's not really the case for him if he stays um for O'Shea, for O'Shea Brissett it is um just because of the type of player he is um, and and less overlap with his skill set. Um, also, like I don't think we've reached the ceiling of what he can be as a college player. While with Tyus Battle, I almost think that like his biggest thing he needs to fix is probably just to, from an efficiency standpoint. And I'm not necessarily sure that you do that um, in in a Syracuse offense. 
Um, so if I'm him, with or without the guarantee, I think I just take my chances this year. Yeah, it's tough when you start to get up to like 21, 22. Um, he's playing guard where there are, you know, obviously I don't know that he's going to become like a, a 3 and D type player where he's um, a good enough three-point shooter to really fill that role. He has good size, but like the age thing becomes really tough. And for O'Shea, who's only, I think, 19 right now, like, yeah. He still has another, like, I, I think he'll probably go after next year because that's kind of the optimal time. Um, but for, for battle, he's already old for his eight, for his grade. Um, and there is no guarantee. Like, we don't know what the guard class is going to look like next year. Um, there's no guarantee that the draft is actually going to be that much weaker next year. I know some people are projecting that. But either way, it's a tough balance to strike, especially with his age. Um, Obviously, he he would be I think twenty two if he was to wait another year uh, yeah. entering the draft, which is is really old, especially as a junior. Um, and he could definitely make some gains in terms of like efficiency and improve uh, his play and show more. Uh, he, I thought he was a, a solid defender this year. He could show more across the board. He could you know be an all all American next year. But the extra age could counteract any any real uh, progress he makes uh, both on the court and in terms of like a. a it being an easier draft potentially or a, a slightly lesser draft. So yeah, maybe he'd move up a little bit, but is that worth a losing out on a full year of NBA paychecks um, in the front end, which is definitely like a thing you have to be concerned about, but also there being no guarantee that he actually helps his stock. So yeah, I, I, I would probably lean towards him leaving just because I also think that once you're like in this process, it, it, it probably is kind of hard to go back unless you, unless it becomes very clear that you're not ready. Right. It's probably a pretty tough thing to like work out against all these guys and talk to all these NBA teams and work out these private workouts and then say, all right, I'm going back to Cuse, unless it's like so obvious that that's the right thing to do. Yeah, and that's the thing with him. It isn't. I feel like if it isn't, you probably go. Like I said, I, I think efficiency is probably the big thing he has to fix. And I don't necessarily think you fix that in a year at Syracuse where you could potentially fix that with unlimited practice hours and unlimited, you know, gym time and, 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 and shooting hours. Like, all of those things that you can do at the NBA level that you can't do um, at, at the college level. I, I think if he has any chance to improve uh, between now and this time next year, um, I, I do feel like the NBA or, or the G League is probably his best bet. Um, I, don't necess- I don't think he ends up going in the first round, to be honest. Um, but I hope by going in the second, perhaps he ends up um, like finding maybe a better situation. Yeah. Either way, I, I'm kind of projecting the same thing. I kind of think he'll draw and he'll end up as a second rounder. But um, no, overall, like I, I, I you know, you, you just hope that he, he gets into a good situation because I think that can largely be the most important thing. We've seen so many guys end up in bad situations, um, like the Sacramento Kings um, with Malachi the last couple uh, couple years ago, where it just like dictates so much about the opportunities ahead of you, um, and it's like nothing you can really do to control. So. Uh, there's definitely like a, a bit of luck, especially on the front end of these careers. And meanwhile, like Malachi would have actually been better off probably going to the team he was originally drafted by. Who took him? I forget. The he... Charlotte Hornets. That's what. Okay, that's what I thought. Yeah, he definitely would have. They have much less. Uh, <laughs> I mean, they have much less. I mean, they're not. They're not a great franchise, but they're not the Kings, and they have much less in terms of guard depth than the uh, the Raptors. Totally. Um, if you had to pick, let's say three teams that you think. And taking personal bias out of it, if you could pick three teams that the Tyus ended up on, uh, who would those three be? Ooh, um, 
not even look at the draft order, just three teams that, that, that you would want him, that you think that he, he could actually, like, get something out of playing for? Um, uh, This is slightly biased, but I think, I mean, with the Nets, he would play, and he would play in a modern system. Right. Um, So that could be one, for sure. And he's a local kid, uh, which would definitely probably, he'd probably like. Obviously, we didn't see it work out super well for Chris McCullough, but there were also mitigating circumstances with his health. So um, the Nets can always use young players, and they'll give them a shot, especially because they probably won't be a contender next year. Uh, ooh, after that, um, I'm trying to think through these rosters. I'll throw out the Grizzlies. Yeah, I mean, if you're going for, like, the hill play, uh, the Grizzlies, the Hawks are definitely options. Um, What's Orlando's guard situation? Uh, well, Jordan's gone. He's not a guard. Yeah, that's right. Um, they traded Alfred Payton. Um, I think, like, Shelvin Mack is one of their best players this year, best guards this year. So, yeah, Orlando's definitely an option <laughs> in terms of if we're just going for the rote, um, we just want him to play no matter what. Their other guards are like DJ Augustine and Mario Hazonia, who's probably gone. Yeah, he's um, gone. Yeah. Um, yeah. I could, I mean, Dallas could be another place. Um, do you think that Dennis Smith and him are like too redundant of one another? Uh, they might be. That's what I was trying to avoid, I guess. My thing but there's is no like, guarantee he'd be playing that no, much true. Smith. True. I guess, yeah, I was just trying to think of like, I was trying to think of situations where like, there's not necessarily a redundancy. Like, I mean, I would never put him on the Knicks because we already have too many guards, and like, and they need more of a true, a true point, right? Um, That's been the case for us for 15 years. This is true. <laughs> um, if the if the I mean, in terms of like more interesting competitive teams, uh, perhaps if the Blazers were to move off of more likely CJ McCollum, yeah, um, they might want uh, a bigger guard. Um, I don't think he would like start or anything right away, but they, they acquired Wade Baldwin last year, who's a bigger guard, who's been pretty bad so far as an NBA player, but they got him as like a kind of a flyer. They have, uh, obviously Lillard's probably going to be there forever. Um, they have Pat Connaughton, but otherwise like their backcourt's pretty open. Um, and they could use like more of that, that wing type, uh, like six foot six, six foot seven guard because their guards right now, Lillard and McCollum are kind of like similar players. And I don't think they're like, there's any guarantee that they move McCollum, but there have been like some of those things that have gotten floated. So I've seen a lot of buzz place. about that. Also, their their third guard really this year was was Shabazz Napier, who's again like a smaller, um, kind of more in the in the the vein of Lillard and McCollum. So that's an interesting place in terms of a, a spot where you know the team's actually relatively competitive. Yeah, I'd say two other destinations. Uh, I float the Lakers out there if only because I don't know what that roster is going to look like. Uh, no one does. <laughs> yeah, no one does, and that's fine. Um, the other option there would be the Spurs, which I think would be really good for him. Yeah, I mean, I think anytime you you can go to the Spurs, like that's there are definite benefits to playing under Pop and playing in that system. Right. All right. So yeah, we'll see. Uh, we'll see what happens here. I, I think we talked about this in a way that that doesn't matter whether he goes or not. It's not gonna. It's not gonna nullify what we said. I mean, the more interesting talking points are if he does go, and we, we talked about that a lot, but if he stays, like, yeah, we have Titus Battle back. Right. There's not more, much more to do. I mean, you can break down our roster, but we kind of know what it is, but, and there's plenty of time to do that. So, um, yeah, we'll find out, um, I assume, in the next week or so. 
Yeah, we got seven days. Well, seven days from the, when we're recording this. Seven days for the NCAA. That's the May thirtieth is the NCAA deadline, Correct. right? Yeah. Which is really the one that matters because you know why would we have one deadline when you can have two <laughs> and have one that doesn't really matter? Yeah, and just confuse the hell out of kids. That's fine. And potentially screw over uh, Br- uh, Brian Bowen. <laughs> like extremely hard. It's just so NCAA of them. Anyway, um, all right. Dan, any other topics you want to want to touch on while we're here today? No, I think that's good. All right. Um, that was Dan. I'm John. Thank you, everybody, for listening to Troy Noons and Absolute Podcast. You can rate, review, subscribe on iTunes and on Blog Talk. Um, Syracuse Rowing, is, I don't have the exact dates, but I know that they're looking for some national championships potentially. Um, the Memorial Day weekend. So I hope everybody enjoys that, too. And uh, go Orange. Orange. Now is the chance to use reliable energy to grow your money with the Dominion Energy Reliability Investment. Our new investment product offers competitive returns, no maintenance fees, and flexible online access to your money. Make the reliable investment in reliable energy. The Dominion Energy Reliability Investment. To find out more, go online to reliabilityinvestment.com. That's reliabilityinvestment.com. At Jared, we know devotion isn't a once a year occasion. And once the flowers have wilted and the chocolates have disappeared, you'll still want them to know how much you care. Dare to give a gift that lasts this Valentine's Day with our incredible selection of jewelry. From delicate rose gold to bold black diamonds, Jared has hundreds of pieces under $299 and exclusive collections you won't find anywhere else. Shop online or find a store near you at jared.com and dare to be devoted.